we're looking at uh, into this uh, topic of what does God expect of me? <clears throat> what does God require of me? You could use several words here uh, in a relationship. <clears throat> and we've, we've discussed this, those four questions, and I'm trusting and knowing you, you know them. And we're going to get finally to four. Uh, <clears throat> what can we reasonably or what can we expect that the Bible tells us we can expect from God? And, I, and I've said uh, to you a couple times that that's a big one. Uh, because I think that lots of times people's faith is, is powerfully affected, negatively or positively, uh, because of either unrealistic expectations or unbiblical expectations or just uh, things that they've believed and thought that really have no foundation uh, in Scripture <clears throat> or experience. And so we'll, we'll look at that. So we're continuing this. Now, <clears throat> I, I've, I've thought or has said, and I, I just want to kind of keep leaving this thought on your mind. It's on your outline there. That what does God expect of me? He expects me to embrace my creaturely status, my creaturely status. You know, I'm not God. <clears throat> You're not either. Um, and sometimes uh, <clears throat> it's a real relief to finally come to grips with that, isn't it? To say, <clears throat> okay, I, I, I can't control. I'm not in control. I'm, I, I can trust. I can depend on God. I can depend, but, but I'm not God. And I think that really what God expects of us is to affirm that, accept that, uh, and embrace that. I'm a creature. I, I'm not God. I, I don't have all the wisdom I need. I don't have all the knowledge, and I can somehow maybe relax a bit and then look to Him. And so we, we, we've looked at that, and I said, how does one embrace your creaturely status? And there are two words that we've been looking at that are found in the Scriptures, and they're actually found in Mark chapter 1. We're going to go back there again. Mark chapter 1. The very first sermon that Jesus ever preached was uh, after John had been taken into custody. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here, or drawn near. The Greek word means here. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I've suggested uh, that, if you will, that uh, the two ways that we actually uh, embrace our creaturely status is we repent. <clears throat> that means to change the mind about what? This is a test. This is a test. Change our mind about what? Who's in charge? Okay, a table here, a table here. Let's go back here. Okay, yeah, yeah. It, it, that's the good. Uh, that, that who's in charge of my life? Uh, ch my mind changes. I change my mind about who's in charge. Who who has the right uh, to to direct and guide my life? That's the first thing. Repent. It's not a negative term. It's not a beat yourself up term. It's not a treat yourself badly term. It's a change my mind uh, to come to the point of saying. I believe that God is the one who should be in control of my life. The second word that's in that passage, <clears throat> excuse me, is repent, or I'm sorry, is belief. But, but let, me, let me draw one more conclusion here, um, uh, or one more statement here on this matter of repent. I think that it's important when we embrace our creaturely status that we don't just understand that we changed our mind. At least when I grew up, repentance was always from something. I don't learn to do this. I don't do that. I, I, I got to stop doing this. But repentance, when it's the change of the mind, is not only turning from certain things, it's also turning to, right? And, and I didn't get that when I was growing up. I didn't understand that turning to. And the turning to, if you will, the turning to is who am I going to believe in? Who am I going to believe in? And that is the second word there of the repentance here of believe. Here we go. Here it is in your outline. I think I've got it. The place of repentance. Then believe in the gospel. 
believe in the gospel. That's what it says in Mark 1.14. I didn't turn there. You did. Uh, so we have this, uh, this understanding here of, uh, of uh, these two words that help us embrace our creaturely status. Last week we looked at, if you want to listen to the recording, we, we looked at the role of feelings as it related to faith. And I really appreciate Dave Harmon coming up here and helping us to understand how a jet pilot has to learn to sort of question their feelings, to not just automatically believe that what they're feeling is true. It has to be consulted. But the idea of faith as a response of our creaturely status. Then Jesus says this. Notice here, I'm trying to get ahead. I'm trying to get going. Here we go. Believe in the gospel. Now, last week we looked at the word believe, what that means. Today, we're going to look at believe in the gospel, okay? I'm so frazzled. I got to pray for a second, okay? I am still, this technology is driving me nuts, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, man, I need you to help me right now to uh, slow down. And I'm thankful for your word, for your spirit. I'm glad I'm with a bunch of people. I can do this. And uh, we all know, I know, you know, we all know in here that real teaching is when people hear another voice. Not mine, yours. And so it's in that sense that I stop. Um, not grinding, just stop. And depend on you to speak to our hearts today, take your word, whether we got technology or not, whether slides work or not, it's immaterial. What's important is that we're tuned in, hearing from you, trusting, looking to you. So would you take your word and make it real in our lives and enable us to be the kind of people that have embraced our creaturely status in such a way that we live in this wonderful time of the year joyfully. Thank you, Jesus, and uh, thanks for being available for us to trust you at all times, even in a Sunday school class. <laughs> we thank you. I thank you. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Okay, i got to calm down here. <laughs> The um, notion here of believing in the gospel, that's what Jesus says. Right? You see, believe in the gospel. We talked about belief. When I was working through this, I got to thinking about this <clears throat> word gospel. Have you ever thought that you knew what something meant and then found out you didn't? Has <laughs> that ever happened to you? Can you think of an experience like that? You think, you know, I thought that's what this meant. Um, I, you know, we, sometimes we read documents and stuff like that. I, I have a, a, a vivid memory when I was in Kentucky out of high school, um, I uh, was some, I, I really came to faith in Jesus when I, about my senior year in high school. And there was a thing that happened back in the 70s. Uh, some of y'all remember that. <clears throat> uh, you just retired. No, no. <clears throat> in the 70s, the thing, they, 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 there was a real revival that swept in the 70s. Uh, <clears throat> it was kind of a Jesus movement. And there were things around the country called youth quakes. And uh, we had them, and I, I sort of got involved in that and, and sort of became a leader because I would talk. Imagine that, huh? <clears throat> and I sort of became a leader in that. Well, there was another guy in the group who was a little older who had graduated in high school named Rick Carter. Rick was 
this blonde-headed, blue-eyed, good-looking guy that we all wanted to be. He went to the University of Kentucky. He was this leader in uh, kind of uh, the ministry, and he started working at Campus Crusade for Christ uh, over in uh, Lexington. And we all wanted to be like Rick, and Rick would come back and wow us with what's going on. He'd gone to the Christmas conference. And I remember my own sense of identity was getting a little attacked because I wasn't the leader. Rick, when he came back, he was kind of the leader. And I was spiritual enough that I didn't like that. <laughs> come on, give me a break. I was 18 years old. Okay? I didn't like that. And I wanted to kind of reexert my authority and my, my leadership. And so Rick... Rick came back from a Christmas conference and uh, began to talk about that they had kind of taken him up in the leadership there at the university in the Campus Crusade for Christ. They call it CRU now, Campus Crusade for Christ group. Uh, and they want to be a leader, and he was going to get some training. And so we're all sitting around here, and all the girls are there. Not that that mattered, you know. <clears throat> all the girls in the group and all the guys. And, and Rick starts talking about how that he really believes that that God has called him to work on college campuses in the area of apologetics. I thought I knew what that word meant. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm going to make a correction here for him and reestablish my authority. And I said, Rick, I don't care what you're involved in now, but I'm never going to apologize for being a follower of Jesus. Real, real good example of where you think you're going up and you're going down. <laughs> this blonde-headed, blue-eyed, good-looking guy informed me that the word apologia in Greek means to defend, not apologize. I kind of slinked off to the side there <clears throat> and said, well, you're just a liberal. You know, you just... Uh, I, it was terrible. I mean, I can remember that like it happened the other day. I, I thought I knew what that word meant. I thought I knew what it meant. And I, and I wonder sometimes when we see believe in the gospel, do we know what that word means? I mean, I mean, we know, if you will, it means good news. But you know what? It's not a religious term. It's not. A, in fact, when, when it says here, believe in the gospel, in Jesus' day, everybody knew that word. Everybody knew that word. It wasn't unique to the gospel or to the Bible. It wasn't unique to Christianity. It was used all the time. Let me tell you why. In two different areas. The word euangelion is the, the Greek word. It, it means this good news or to be good news. It was oft, often used when a battle had been won. And there were people that would run to the towns or the areas and herald the good news. We won. We didn't get beat. It was often used in that regard. Second one, it, it was often used whenever there was news about the birth of a king or the birthday of Caesar. In fact, there's a long, I'm not going to read it because we're running. There, there's a long uh, uh, statement here by the Greeks uh, in, uh, in, in uh, at BC 9 when the birthday of Augustus happened. And, and this term was highly political and it was highly military. The idea that somebody's won a battle, the idea that some political person has taken the throne, this word was not unique. It had to do with this notion of good news of some sort that should change the very fabric and nature of life. So it wasn't a religious term. 
wasn't something that was unique to the Bible, was used all the time. So when the writer here, or when Jesus says, believe in the good news, there is this notion that there's been a battle that's been won. There is the notion there's a political leader who's come to exert his authority in the earth. There's, a, there's an understanding of this good news of God in the earth and in the world. And when they heard that term, it had no religious ramifications to begin with. It had all the matters of victory and, if you will, political power. And so when Jesus said, believe in the gospel, I just have to think that those people had the belief and understanding something's here. Now, notice here in Mark, if you're there, again, I told you, go there. When it says right here, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we're going to work through this here, <clears throat> a few terms here and a few ideas. But this word, to believe in the good news, would have rattled all kinds of thoughts and ideas in their mind. That this is not simply a religious idea, but in fact, it has to do with conquest, with victory. It's actually when they would use the term of evangelion, they would often use the word Nike, which doesn't mean just do it. Nike or, yeah, or Nike is the Greek word for victory. Nike. Nikomen is the Greek word that would be used. That euangelion nikomen, it's the good news of victory. So when Jesus uses this term, it's highly charged with the idea of what's going on here. And of course, at Christmas, we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. We're going to talk about his incarnation like that. But really, the, the notion here of the gospel is there is this good news of victory, good news of kingship, good news of this, if you will, invasion of victory into the world. So I, wanna, I want us to, to, to look at this. So to believe in the gospel. So maybe the term, you know, we, we've made it too religious. We made it, we made it too Christianized. Instead of understanding it in its original historical context, that this term would shake people up a little bit. In fact, I'd say that we're going to go to the, I'm going to go to the kingdom on the last year. But I'll tell you what, there was a guy that lived in another country, <clears throat> a little bit north of there, that when he heard kingdom, it bothered him. His name was Caesar. <laughs> and when he heard the word kingdom, that was not an, an innocuous term to him. That was not a term that was kicked around and thought about as if it was just some general kind of religious idea. This was the kind of term that threatened Rome to the core. This king, this one, this good news of a good king who's won a victory. So I want to look at that in a little more detail. Does that make sense? This word is not religious, okay? Don't, don't, don't think that. This word is not religious in nature at all. It is completely secularized and understood, and it's been taken over to communicate these truths about the gospel. Now, I want to ask you to consider, I'll get you two verses. Go to John chapter 1. We're going to look here just for a moment. John chapter 1. I'm going to try to explain here a little bit uh, what I think that Jesus is saying here when he says, hey, embrace your creaturely status. Embrace your creaturely status. <clears throat> And believe in the gospel. 
Believe in this good news of victory. Believe in this good news of this king who has come into the world. Now notice here, I'm going to start reading here in John chapter 1. The Pharisees had been sent to John, and they asked him and said to him, Why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ? That's the anointed one. Mashiach is the word there, the idea of the one who is coming as Messiah to set up this kingdom. Nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands ones whom you don't know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want to stop right there because I want to, I want to look at this just for a moment. Because when people ask me, Cliff, what is the gospel? And, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'll tell them what I've told you, that it's about a kingdom. We're going to look at that at the end. But there is this notion, if in, in my view, that in John 1, 29 to 34, that the gospel is declared here under two basic ideas. Number one, we've talked about this before, is that believe in the gospel that there is pardon in the gospel. Pardon. To forgive. Believing in the gospel, notice what it says. <clears throat> John identifies him here as the Lamb of God who takes away <clears throat> the sin of the world. And, and, and this notion here, <clears throat> just, just want to look at when, when, when he said that, when he declared that, to believe in the gospel, that for thousands of years Jews had practiced sacrificing lambs uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to deal with their sin and their rebellion against God. For, for 2,000 years they'd heard this, and now John declares, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Part of the gospel, part of it, part of the gospel has to do with this incredible news of pardon, of forgiveness, of willingness to let go. Now notice, <clears throat> I just want to walk us through for a second. Look at this, it says, who is he? Whose lamb is he? The what? <clears throat> the Lamb of God. Notice that. <clears throat> uh, as I was reflecting on this and spending a little time more working on it, I thought of this. This is the Lamb that belongs to God. Of, the, the preposition there, of <clears throat> suggest ownership. Like the, the, the Bible of Cliff, that, <clears throat> that's Cliff's Bible. The, the lamb of, this is the Lamb that belongs to God. This is not the lamb that belongs to Cliff. This is not the lamb that belongs to others. This is the lamb that belongs to God. It's interesting that in the atonement idea, or that forgiving and covering sin, that, that Jesus not only makes an offering, but is the offering. He not only makes it, he is the offering. And it's the lamb of God, the, the, the lamb that belongs to God. I... I when I'm, I'm just thinking now, thinking out loud here, when I was working through this, don't, I don't go too far, but it's not, it's like this understanding of the gospel is that God is offering the sacrifice he requires. It's the lamb of God. He's offering the sacrifice that he requires. It's not the lamb of Cliff, or it's not the lamb of Leslie. It's not the, the lamb of, of, of any of us. It's the lamb of God who's providing this for us. The, the same uh, idea of the lamb for the Exodus, right? And the Passover and, and uh, the 
<clears throat> yeah, the lamb. Yes. I, are you talking about the scapegoat also here? No, I'm talking about the blood of the lamb that makes it on the Yes. Yeah, she's talking about, too, at the Exodus when they took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost. The death angel then went across. Yeah, same idea. Yeah, this lamb is the lamb that God provides for the sacrament. You, you don't provide it. I don't have to provide. I just want to, I want you to think about this for a second. In my, in my mind, oh, and maybe it's my tradition I grew up in, that a lot of times I was always thinking that I had to really do something to be pardoned. But this is the lamb of God. This is the lamb that God provides. We'll celebrate this because of the manger, but this is the lamb of God that, that, that he provides for us. Now notice what it does. And it, this is what I was saying, Annette, with, with that idea. What does it do? The lamb of God that does what? Takes away the sin of the world. <clears throat> the Greek word there is pretty interesting. It means to carry off or to lift up. And <clears throat> I wrote in my notes when I was, when I was a working uh, working through uh, some of this material. <clears throat> when, I, when I looked at... The, oh, here we go. When I was working through this, this idea <clears throat> of the Lamb of God, the pardon that He offers, is He lifts up and takes away the sin of the world. It made me <clears throat> remember in Leviticus 16, the scapegoat, that on the Day of Atonement, there was not only a lamb that was sacrificed. There was also a scapegoat. <clears throat> you know that, that... There was a goat that the high priest put a red thread around his head. A red thread to symbolize blood. And he placed his hands on the animal and confessed the sins. And then the priest would take that lamb and drive it out into the desert east of Jerusalem. And all the sins would be carried away into the desert by that lamb. Now think about the picture they're getting. What are they seeing? They're seeing their sin do what? Go away. They're, they're seeing their sin being taken away. Take away. It's carried off. I, I, I wonder, do you and I have the same sense that when we trust in Jesus that he takes our sin away? Or do you keep remembering it? Do you keep allowing it to be brought up? Do you, do you think... That it's not gone, it's just you're not getting punished for it. It says here he takes it away, carries it off. I, I love the picture there. To be able to see, <clears throat> there goes that animal into the desert, taking away my sin. Jesus, or John said, this is that Lamb of God that is taking your sin away. Oh, wait, that's the gospel, folks. That, that's the idea that something else or someone else is taking our sin away from us, never to be remembered against us anymore. I don't know if that means anything to you, but I tell you, when I was working through this, I just kept saying, he's taking away this sin. This is the work of the lamb, to take it away. And if you believe in the gospel, or if I believe in the gospel, I don't have to take my sin away. The lamb takes it away. I don't have to do enough things to get my sin taken away from me. It gets taken away by the lamb, by the lamb instead of me. I think this notion here we have to have clearly, if you will, is the understanding to believe in the gospel is to believe in the lamb of God who takes away the sin of what? 
the world. I want you to think about this. Sometimes people are so affected by their sin or their failure, they need to believe the gospel. Partly because we know what we did, right? We know it wasn't a mistake. We know it wasn't an error. We just did it, you know. We, we just did it, and we know that about ourselves. And sometimes the idea of taking the sin away, okay, but taking away the sin of the world, that sometimes we fail to remember that our sin is not so big because this lamb can take the sin of what? The world. Your sin's not too big. My sin's not too big. Because this lamb, <clears throat> this pardon, takes the sin of the world away and carries it away. And listen, I, if you have time, just a second, go to your table of contents, find the book of 1 John. <clears throat> this is the same idea from John the Gospel. But in 1 John 2, I want to just read you this verse here. I'm, I'm, just, <clears throat> I tell you, I'm just thinking about people whose conscience is so sensitive. Sometimes they can't leave themselves alone. So, so, some, really, I'm serious. You know, you gotta, I, like I said, you've got to quit listening to everything you think. <laughs> you just got to quit listening to everything. But, but some people's conscience is so sensitive that their sin <clears throat> is ever before them, David said. And, and they need to hear this lamb takes away the sin of the world. In 1 John 2, verse 1, <clears throat> same author makes a similar statement and says this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you'll not sin. I mean, that's the goal. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sin. And not only for ours only. What? The whole world. Do you, do you ever get like that? Do you think your sin's too big? Do, do you think that what you've done is too big? It can't be. Because he can not only forgive your sins, says he's propitiated for our sins, but not only ours, but what? The whole world. That's been a comfort to me over the years. I've kind of got one of those minds that won't let go of things, <clears throat> one of those minds that won't stop thinking and trying to redo and go like, I, I, I sometimes think, Cliff, you really don't believe the lamb carried it away. <laughs> You still got it. You're still playing with it. You're still goofing around with it. You're still thinking about it. You're still looking at it. You're trying to figure it out, analyze it. Why did I do that? Because you're a knucklehead. That's why, Cliff. <laughs> That's simple. Can't you get that? <clears throat> right? But, but the idea is the lamb carries it away, takes it away, and he takes away not only your sin and my sin, but the whole world. Listen, I, I want to ask you this Christmas season to believe that. See, believe in the gospel. To believe in the gospel, can I, can I give you a shock? You're, you're not that big a deal. <laughs> you're not. I'm sorry to tell you that. I know you thought you were the center of the universe. I've been going to the center of the universe thinking I'd be there. You know, A couple of times I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a, when I get to the center of the universe, I'll be there. Listen, I'm not, I'm not making light of it. I'm just simply saying, you're not that big a deal. You may have an overactive conscience. You may have an overactive sensitivity that the enemy can use against you. This lamb is God's, not yours. This lamb <clears throat> lifts it up and takes it off, carries it out. Get the picture in your mind. Out in the desert. It's gone. And it's the sin of the whole world. 
the sin of the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. I, I'll show you. <clears throat> I'm, gonna, I'm going away. Man, I, I got finals to grade. I got to eat home. <clears throat> <clears throat> Y'all stop this. Y'all are making me think this stuff. <clears throat> Look over here. Second Peter, <clears throat> just real quick. The sin of the world. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> I, you know, Becky and I, are, while you're turning, Becky and I are talking about this. I, sometimes Christmas is kind of a sad time for me. Sometimes I just think I'm not good enough or hadn't done enough. Or, it is. It can be a sad time. And I think some of it is I, I fail to remember that this lamb took the whole sin of the whole world. You, you don't believe that? Watch this. Look, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. <clears throat> But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will also arise false prophets among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even, even denying the master who what? What? Say it louder. Bought who? Them. Jesus bought the false prophets. The sin of the world. They deny him. You know, they're false prophets. But they deny the one who bought them. You're not that big a deal. <clears throat> You're not that big a deal. I'm not that big a deal. I'm not that important. In other words, this lamb can carry it off for the sin of the whole world. Okay? Believe in the gospel, the Lamb of God. Okay, that's the first one. That's, that's this idea of pardon. i got to hurry, like I always say. <clears throat> now we're back in John. No, I'm jumping around. There's another piece to the gospel that I think sometimes we don't remember or we don't listen to or we don't hear. And it's in this John passage. And it's the idea of presence and power. Thankfully, <clears throat> forgiveness occurs. But, but let, me, let me give you an example here. If, <clears throat> if I owed you 100 bucks, and I, you know, I was like, oh, to Kenny. I owed Kenny 100 bucks. And he's going, you do? No. <laughs> if I owed Kenny 100 bucks, and I went to him and I said, look, Kenny, I, you know, I'm, I'm tapped out. I don't have any money. Uh, you know, show you my wallet. And uh, I can't pay you. And he says, you know what? I just forgive you. I let it go. I release it. I let it go. Let me ask you something. Did any, did any money show up in my wallet when he did that? No. no. Listen now. Forgiveness is simply the release of debt. Forgiveness is simply the release of something. Take it away. It's on. I don't have $100 in my wallet now. Money doesn't suddenly appear in there all of a sudden. It's just been forgiven. And here's what I want to say. I, this is the piece of the gospel I think sometimes we're missing. It's not only, if you will, the pardon, the release, the forgiveness. There's the need for the presence and power. Look, look what John says. <clears throat> Verse 30, uh, 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 30, we're back in John 1. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is higher rank than I. He existed before me. I did not recognize him, so I went baptizing to Israel 
I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said, he upon whom you see the Holy or the spirit descending as a dove remains. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified this is the Son of God. It seems to me, for whatever, there are lots of reasons I think this is true, that part of the gospel that's missing, that we're told to believe in, is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Otherwise, we're just empty. We're forgiven. The debt's gone. But where's the power? Where's the empowering for life? And this is the gospel. This is John saying, listen, he's the Lamb of God, and he's also the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And this is the peace that suggests here, the baptizer, the, the one who would bring, if you will, the experience of the Holy Spirit. I've got an opinion here. You know, you don't have thoughts and opinions as teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across community church, its elders or leadership. I think we've seen so much excess at times, maybe on Christian television or in other groups. You know, maybe I said, and, I, and I'm not being unkind. I just, there are probably people who are charismaniac where everything is, you know, this thing. And yet sometimes I'm afraid I and we have been charisphobiacs. We're scared. We're not real open to the fact that God could bust out of our box and do some stuff, right? Both of those are probably incorrect positions to take. Either too extreme in one direction where it's everything. You know, I, 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 I ran around some guys. I told you Rick Carter was a nut with the other guy. I ran around with a guy one time. We ran out of gas or the car started acting up and Ellis gets out and starts casting a demon out of the motor. He really did. And I said, Ellis... I don't think it is. I know the kind of gas you use. Cheap. I, you know, we were, done, we were 18 years old. But this teaching, this understanding, this is not stop at Lamb of God and there you go. It's believe in the gospel. The gospel is this understanding that this is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. What, what does that mean? Notice here. Let me give you some evidence. First of all, this is the promise of the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a new covenant. And I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to give you of my spirit. And I'm going to write my laws on your heart. And everyone will say, know the Lord himself. This is the promise of the Old Testament. In fact, this last word we're looking at, the kingdom, the understanding of the Messiah, when the, when the Messiah came and the kingdom of God was set up, it was known as the age of the Spirit. I, I don't think, I told my students before, I've said over the years, I don't know that we teach them enough about this. This is the birthright of every child of God. To have been baptized, immersed in, introduced to the Spirit. In, 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 in Ezekiel 36, that's the promise. In Jeremiah 31. 
in Judaism, there were all kinds of washings and baths called mikvahs and bathings. And there was always this bathing that took place when a Gentile became a Jew. They had a baptism. And that was their introduction into Judaism. In Christianity, we do the same thing. We have a mikvah. It's called baptism. After a person places their faith. This imagery, this understanding is that when a follower or a person who believes in the Lamb of God, they are introduced, immersed into life in the Holy Spirit. The presence of God. Not just the pardon of God, but the presence of God. Jesus talked about this when he said, how many of you, if you're good fathers, if your son asks for a stone, you give him a piece of bread. If he asks for a, 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 you give him a snake. You know, at the end of that teaching, he says, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? Isn't that interesting? If your children ask for a loaf of bread, you don't give them a stone. Or if they ask for a fish, you don't give them a snake. He's not talking about daily bread here. He's talking about the thing that sustains our life. How much more then will your father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? You, you know why? Because it's only those who sense their need who ask. It's only those who've come to the limit and the end of their own energy and strength that ask. It's only those who, who recognize there's got to be more to this than this. Just trying harder, working at it, doing my best. There's got to be more in terms of presence and power. And that's the promise. He's the one who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. Let me just make a couple of final statements and we may not be able to watch. The, after all that work, we may not watch the video. Brother. I, I want to tell you something though. It's possible that what's happened here in the church, and boy, this is, I don't want to sound so arrogant. Just, just say this. It's possible what's happening is this. We have something that God has given us but we either don't know it or we failed to employ it. Give me an example. When I was a pastor, when I left Houston years ago, when I was leaving, I had a guy that was from Trip, Texas. And man, you got to be from East Texas to know where I'm true. I'm sorry, Troop, Troop, Texas. You got to be in Texas to know where that is. And I knew where it was. And so we got to kind of knowing each other. And, and, uh, and uh, we like jazz. I like Dave Gruzin and Spira Gyra and some of that other kind of stuff. And so, so my buddy made me a, a, a tape. I think he probably illegally did, but made me a, back then a tape. Remember those things? A cassette? <clears throat> made me one. And so uh, I had left ahead of time. So Wayne Bolenbacher was on the staff, mailed it to me in Lexington. We were poorer than church mice going to seminary. And I never opened this uh, cassette because I just didn't have time to listen to a lot of music. And, I, you know, I just had it there. And... Um, so at one point, I'm talking to Wayne on the phone weeks or months later, and he said, hey, did you ever open that, uh, that tape uh, that our friend gave you with, from Dave Gruzin? I go, no, Wayne, I haven't had time. He said, you might want to do that. I said, why's that? He said, there's a $100 bill in there. <laughs> Man, 
a hundred, I'm sitting on a hundred dollar bill in my office. Didn't know I had it. It was there. Listen, the New Testament says this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. It's not something you have to do. It's not something you have to do. you, You have been baptized into life in the Spirit when you become a follower of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, with all the problems, those churches, you know, with Corinth and all that kind of stuff, wouldn't you think that Paul would say, well, you haven't received the Spirit. That's what the problem is. No, he never says that. He never says your problem is, even though you're having trouble, that you don't have the Holy Spirit. He said your problem is you need to be filled continuously with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, it's what we call a durative present. You need to be being filled on a day-to-day basis. Never, you don't have the Spirit. It's always, you have the Spirit. You need to be being filled on a day-to-day basis. Now, let me tell you why I think that doesn't happen. This is a close opinion. You don't have to agree with it. I don't think we need God that much. Do we? Anybody worried they're going to eat today? Anybody worried that they might be in danger because of their faith? I don't think we need him that much, right? Let's be honest. Let's be honest. I'm not suggesting we have to do something dramatic. I'm simply saying that the life that Americans live rarely need the power of the Spirit. Now, I'll give you a way to do that if you want it. Would you like to know how to experience life in the Spirit on a more regular basis? Here it is. Get involved in ministry with real people who have real problems. You you want to increase your capacity for the Spirit? Get involved in ministry with real people who got real problems. That you have to go to God and say, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know. Listen, listen, you probably had some of this when you're raising kids. Now they're all gone and now you don't need God anymore. (laughs) Right? Because grandkids are all perfect. (laughs) It's not that we don't have the spirit. It's just we don't need him. Right? We don't need him. And some of us, maybe if we're going to believe in the gospel that that that, the, that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is really available. We're going to have to make some changes. How are we going to adjust our life to say, how am I going to get out of this lane that I live in that means I don't need God? I don't need Him. I really don't. I haven't needed Him for months. Haven't, haven't had, had to, nothing has come. Now, again, when illness comes, when tragedy strikes, then we need him. We find his presence, don't we? You know what I'm saying? How many, how many would say, I'm not going to embarrass you, how many would say you experienced God's presence in ways that you never had before when you had a terrible illness or something happened to you or some tragedy, right? Why? You got pressed out of yourself. 
You got pressed out of yourself. This participation, this life in the Spirit. That's what the Christian life is. That's the gospel. It's not just pardon. It's also presence. I got I to finish with this. I got I to gotta do this. You got to fill all these out. Or for two weeks, you will be berserk. <clears throat> the last is, the gospel is a plan or proposal. I got a lot on this, and I'm just going to run it down quick. Comes back to Jesus' words there. The kingdom. The, the, the gospel is about a pardon. It's about a presence. And it's about a plan. It's fascinating to me that when you study the New Testament, Jesus used the word kingdom 129 times. All of his, all of his parables were about what? The kingdom. Let me translate that for you. You know this, but I think that the kingdom of God, kingdom, basileia, is the word, the rule of God. This is why this is such a dangerous proposition in Jesus' day. Caesar didn't take kindly to other people saying, I got a kingdom here I'd like to invite you to. But Jesus, in fact, declares the kingdom of God is here. What's that from? Think about this. I'm running, fa I'm running fast here. But go back to the Old Testament in Daniel 2 and Daniel 9. The promise of the coming of the kingdom of God. That stone cut out of the mountain. That kingdom that will never end. We'll sing about this in, in, at Christmas when we say, And he shall reign forever and ever. The hallelujah chorus. This idea of a kingdom. The rule of God. The rule of God has come. Jesus said it's come to set itself up. So now in my life and in your life, we determine instead of the rule of self, we're going to follow the rule of who? God. The rule of God. You see, this, this idea of Jesus saying the kingdom's here. There's something big here. There's something you can be a part of. There's a ruler. There's a way of life. There's a way of living. It's time for the rule of God in our lives. It's time for us to say, my ultimate supreme authority is the kingdom of God. The rule of God. It's time for that. So I want to ask you a question here. We don't have time to unpack all that. What if this week you decided to believe in one aspect of the gospel in a specific way? What aspect? Pardon? Presence? Or God's plan? The kingdom of God. The rule of God in the lives of human beings. You know why the Jews missed the kingdom of God? They thought it was limited to a location and to a group of people. This kingdom knows no boundaries. It knows no ethnicity. It knows no limits. The kingdom is the effective rule of God in the hearts and lives of people. The kingdom is the effective rule of God in 